You'll join me in Revelation chapter 3 this morning. If you're using the blue ESV Bible, that is on page 1029, 1029. Revelation chapter 3 this morning, we will be, uh, begin looking at chapter 3. So we'll be in verses 1 through 6 in our series through the letters to the churches in Revelation called Dear Church. The title of our sermon this morning is Sardis, Sleepiness. And our key words for our worshipers in training are alive dead, and wake. Now, I did a little learning from my wife this week. She taught me a little bit about brain aneurysms. An aneurysm on the brain, always something we love talking about in our household, is when one blood vessel balloons up in size, and it occurs at a point in a blood vessel where it is weakened, usually in the muscle layer of an artery. It looks sort of like a blister or a bubble, if you were to see one, and the problem with an aneurysm is not the aneurysm itself, it's when that bubble bursts or breaks open. And so the aneurysm can be completely painless. A person could go years and years without ever knowing that it's there. In fact, uh, doctors believe that aneurysms are uh, something that we are probably prone to from birth because of weak blood vessels in our brains. But until it bursts, most people never even know about it. And actually, this, uh, this is something that, if found prior to it bursting, is usually because they were looking at something else. Now, generally, an aneurysm bursting happens when a person is over the age of 40. So I don't mean to frighten you here, but it is very likely that with a group this size, some of us here this morning have a brain aneurysm and don't even know about it. But if it bursts, there's a very real possibility that it will kill you immediately. So that's your comforting thought for the day. Go in peace. But really, there are a lot of things like that, aren't there? There are a lot of things going on inside of our bodies right now that we know nothing about. Things that could be there for a long time before we ever found out. Maybe things that we'll never know about in our lifetime because they'll be discovered after we die. On the outside, everything could look great. In fact, you could even feel great and be in great shape and have no real problems at all, but all of a sudden, one day, it hits only to find out that it's been a quiet disease or disorder that has been under the surface for years, maybe your entire lifetime. You may be alive, but in reality, when looked at from on the inside, you are proverbially a dead man walking. Well, this morning as we continue in our series through Jesus' letters to the churches in Revelation, we come to the church at Sardis where Jesus examines their spiritual condition and identifies that while their reputation is that they are alive, they're really the walking dead. They look alive on the outside, but in the inside, they are dead. They are wasting away, and they don't even know it. Very soon, the vessel that's been swelling, that's been ballooning, it's about to pop, and they will die. It's another sobering warning from Jesus this morning. So let's read the text and see what Jesus has to say to the church at Sardis, beginning in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1. 
And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you, still, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Sardis was a city located in the Necropolis Mountains, and because of how it was situated in the mountains, it was judged by everyone to be virtually impregnable when uh, those people who wanted to attack them came. There were so many cliffs and, and rocks, and these cliffs, these rocks were made out of a very fragile substance, so uh, it would break underfoot. And it was very steep, so everyone was afraid to attack Sardis. Throughout the history of Sardis, they were taken two different times. However, in light of what was going on in the rest of the world at that time, that really was nothing. And so, Sardis had a reputation, and they themselves held on to that reputation and believed that they were an unattackable city. And they believed it wasn't just that it was not something worth doing, it was too risky. And not only did everyone around Sardis think that was true, within the church, they thought that was true as well. We're safe from danger. Additionally, the city had a reputation for being wonderful. And the church, therefore, had a reputation for being wonderful. People like us. People think we're great. It's a deadly combination to think you're safe from danger and everybody likes you. So let's see what Jesus says to this church. Our first point we see in verse 1 this morning is that reputation isn't everything. Notice right out of the gate, Jesus is going after their reputation and their own assumptions about themselves. He says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. They are the walking dead. The disease has set in. It's going to kill them even though they have a great reputation. Everyone thinks you're great. You think you're great. Everyone thinks you're safe. You think you're safe. But Jesus says, no, you're dead. You're dead. And it's sort of an obvious conclusion for us to ask of this. Is this Jesus' examination of my own life? of our church. You see, other churches would have read this letter to the church at Sardis and said, Sardis? No way. No, that's a great church. There's no problems there. And this is Jesus saying this to people who were persecuted and who were ostracized. So just imagine, just imagine how much more he would say to so many churches today. What about us? 
Do we have a good reputation? But in actuality, are we dead inside? In our culture, one of the things that's so often looked at that gives a church is a, a good reputation is how enormous it is. But historically, throughout the history of the church, not just in the 21st century, but historically, enormous churches have most often signaled spiritual death and false teaching. That's not always the case. That's not 100% of the time. There are some great churches that are quite large. But the vast majority of churches, not just today, but throughout the history of the church, that are enormous in size are often spiritually dead. Often what you have is people who are discontent. So they move somewhere where they can be more anonymous because the level of commitment to get in and to stay in is seemingly in reverse proportion to faithfulness. One of the exceptions to this was the great Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. He was used mightily by God, so mightily that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people sought to hear him preach every single week when he got into the pulpit. But the people weren't influenced by Spurgeon's attempts at entertaining them or making sure that the mood or the atmosphere was right in the church because the church... uh, you know, maybe had enough programs or they, they had things to keep the kids busy while they listened to the preaching. No, Spurgeon was, was very concerned that he simply focused on the simple means of grace and the preaching of the gospel. And he was very concerned with all of these thousands of people coming that everyone in the church was cared for and watched over. He always made himself available to the people of God, making sure that the, the church had enough elders that everyone had someone to watch over their souls. So Spurgeon was very opposed to what we today would call church growth strategies. And what are those strategies? Those are things that can supposedly be done to do what? To attract people. Because they give the church a good reputation. And people want to be there. They want to be where there's a good reputation. Well, here's what Spurgeon had to say about such things. He said this, Oh, what would some preachers do to get the people to hear them at all? Ah, what, they, what are they not doing, dear friends? As things now go, I should not wonder at all if we were to have in some of our great places of worship a part of Mr. Barnum's show. He's talking about P.T. Barnum, the founder of Barnum and Bailey Circus. In order to attract a congregation... We have all kinds of fiddling and tinkering and I know not what going on to get people to come and hear what is called the gospel. Oh, said one, but he brought so many to the place. Yes, if they had had a clown out of the theater, he would no doubt have brought still more. If that is all that you want, simply to gather a crowd together, it is not so very difficult if you are not squeamish about the means you employ. But oh, When God sends the people to hear the gospel and nothing also, and they come and listen to what a man has to say to them about heaven and hell, life and death, the cross of Christ and the way of salvation, that is the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees. You see, reputation isn't everything. It's really easy, especially in the 21st century. It is really easy to be impressive. If you have enough money and you have the right guy to lead the show, you can call yourself a church and have an amazing reputation. But what's Jesus' assessment? He tells Sardis, I know your works. In other words, you can hide it from everyone else. You cannot hide it from me. 
You have dirt bikes and rodeo clowns and laser shows and fog machines. You ride in on a motorcycle. You give talks instead of sermons. You have communicators instead of preachers. You have a series to extract supposed spiritual lessons from Hollywood movies. Your children's program is like a Disney show. I see all of that, and I know what it is. What does he say to them? You have a reputation of being alive. Do you know why churches, not just big churches, but small churches, do you know why churches sometimes are so often a constant beehive of activity? Always something going on, always something for everyone to do. Because when we're running from one thing to the next, and it's all under the umbrella of the church, it makes it seem like we're doing great things for God. And man, it's really earning us a great reputation. Now, of course, there are great things that churches do outside of the gathering of the church for corporate worship. We do several of those things. But if everything doesn't have a defined purpose, if everything we do as a church isn't centered on the Word of God, then what are we doing? Gaining a reputation? But Jesus is clear. Reputation isn't everything. And in fact, sometimes it's not a good thing at all because it lulls us to sleep. We can think everything's great when everything's not great. So Jesus gives a rebuke of the church at Sardis, but he also moves toward a remedy. And we see that in our second point this morning in verses 2 and 3. He tells the church that self-death leads to true life. Jesus offers help, and He does so by providing the primary symptom that if seen, if known, everyone could identify that indeed there was a deadly killer hidden underneath the surface. So what was the symptom, and and why didn't anyone see it? Well, they didn't see it because they were all asleep, and that is the symptom. We see that in verse 2. They were overtaken by spiritual sloth. Well, what exactly is that? It's, it's some of you right now. It's likely all of us at some point in our Christian life. We can be surrounded by the praises of God, but the praises of God don't take claim over our hearts. Not coming into our hearts, not transforming our hearts, not renewing our minds. It's spiritual sloth, and it's, it's a sign. It's a, a signification that we're spiritually weakened. It's the most prominent spiritual sickness in the church today. The Word of God is spoken, but we hear it with such passivity. We regard it as the words of men and not the Word of God that is to be at work within us and among us. And so hearing preaching or studying the Scriptures or reading good Christian books or being in the worship of God it's all sort of, it all sort of loses its luster, and it's like listening to the same song over and over and over again, and, and we no longer get excited when we hear it on the radio. We might even turn the channel next time. As you know, when, you're, when you go to a doctor, one of the first questions they ask, one of the things they're going to ask you is, how is your appetite? Do you have an appetite? And if you don't, that signifies there's a problem. Do you have a spiritual appetite for the Word of God? If you're in a state of spiritual sloth, 
You've had enough of it. You become like the Israelites. Yeah, we've been eating this manna that's coming from heaven every day. The Lord is feeding us. We've had enough of it. We want the leeks and the onions in Egypt when we were slaves. Have you had enough? Are you full of it? It's like when you're trying to decide what to eat and you go through a list of ideas and you just sort of say, eh, that doesn't sound like what I want. I don't have a taste for that right now. Brothers and sisters, that's a terrible place to be spiritually. It's a deadly place to be because our spiritual sloth will eventually kill us. It lurks under the surface, and while we can do everything to make sure we have a good reputation on the outside, on the inside, it's possible that the church can be the walking dead. There's a radical spiritual medicine that needs to be administered, and Jesus provides that medicine, and He gives three specific things, three imperatives, three medicines that we need to take if we are spiritually dead. The first is this, in verse 2, we see the first one he says right there at the beginning, wake up. Stop slumbering, stop sleeping, stop being slothful, and wake up. Do you remember in Matthew 26, Jesus is going to Gethsemane, and he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he was about to go into the garden, but he stops short and he he has them sit down and he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And he prayed for a while in the garden. Then he comes back and the text says, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away, he prayed again, he came back again, and the text says, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And what happened? What is all of that about? What is that story about? Why does the Bible recount that? Well, it wasn't long after that. That not one, not two, not those three, but all of Jesus' disciples eventually abandoned him when he was betrayed by Judas and made his way to Golgotha to be hanged on a cross. Why? Because in that time, in that moment, they had fallen asleep. Not just physically, but spiritually. And so, we get a better picture of what Jesus is saying here. Wake up! Be alert! Stop being spiritually asleep. There's a great enemy waiting to attack. And if you're not ready, if you're not waiting, if you're not prepared and spiritually alert, the enemy is going to have you in his jaws before you even wake up and know what's happening. But the reality is that for me and for you, this is the hardest thing to do, to rouse ourselves to respond. We need a spiritual physician. We need the Lord Jesus because we cannot rouse ourselves. We cannot wake ourselves. We need Christ to wake us. Well, the second thing Jesus provides as a medicinal imperative 
to get to the aneurysm before it bursts is in verse 3, and he tells us to remember what we've received in the gospel. Do you find yourself often, maybe in Bible studies or listening to preaching or in Sunday school, constantly checking your watch, constantly thinking about other things you need to do, constantly waiting to get it over with so you can move on with your life? Listen, we've all been there. And I know I've listened to recordings of my sermons. I get it. But there's a problem here, right? We get bored. We get bored with the most significant truth in the world, and that is a huge problem. Listen, you are going to hear a lot of important things this week. Most of you have jobs, and at your jobs you have important things to do. There's important news to follow and keep up with. But right now, in this hour, you are hearing the most important thing you will hear all week long. I don't care who you are. You can be the king of the universe. You're not, but you could be. And the most important thing you will hear all week long is when you gather with God's people to hear the preaching of His Word. Not because of who's preaching it, because of what is said. Hearing the Word of God is of utmost importance. But we get bored, and that's a problem. So Jesus says, remember what you received and heard. Don't just get through a sermon and walk away from it and say, thank God that's over. I have a lot to do today. No, we should hear God's Word. We should read God's Word. We should walk away from it and say, oh God, help me. Help me to remember and to work your word over in my life. Help me to apply it. Help me to talk to others about it. That I might know and love you all the more and become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, would it be that God would give us this kind of focus in becoming more like our Savior? Well, the third of remedies he gives us, again in verse 3, Jesus gives us this next pill to swallow. He says, very simply, Repent. Turn around and go back on the long road against where you drifted initially from God. Restoration begins in an instant, but it can be long. It can be a slow and painful process. Some of us have endured long recoveries after surgeries or illnesses. We've gone through the pain of things like physical therapy, and we realize that recovery doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. Or... As you get older, you start to put on weight. Maybe you get a little lazy. You're more unwilling to be active as you once were. The pounds come on, and then one day you're buying bigger clothes, and you're not liking what you're seeing in the mirror, and you say, what are you doing? Wake up! Turn back from this. Get back on the path. That's a great starting place, but it it takes time. It takes time. It takes discipline. It takes hard work. It, It won't happen overnight but it's worth the journey. Look, all recovery, all efforts at getting more healthy take time and effort and months, sometimes years, and it's critical that we work at it, but it's worth it. We're talking here about our physical bodies maybe, but Jesus is saying, don't you believe that you have an eternal soul? Isn't it worth it for eternity? Is that not far more important? So you see, the remedy that Jesus gives to our spiritual sleepiness, our spiritual sloth, the remedy He gives that we would not be the walking dead, but that we're spiritually alive, that we might really get through death, is that we do die. But that we die to ourselves, that we might live fully upon Christ. 
You see, the answer to death is to go through death. Death to ourselves. Death to our own self-righteousness. Death to our own wisdom. And death to all the finite things that we cling on to. You know, in sports, when you get an athlete who goes through a bad streak, like in, in golf, if there's a golfer who's losing his swing, Oftentimes, he's going to go out and hire a sports psychologist, and they'll do all kinds of things. One of the things they try is they'll hypnotize the guy, and they'll sort of get him there, and what they're trying to do is they're saying, you're great. You can win. You can shoot a 59. You're the greatest golfer who's ever lived. And they get them in this way of thinking, and they're trying to get him to a place where he feels really great about himself as a golfer. So when he goes out there on the course, he has a tremendous amount of confidence, and he will hit the ball well. And when he stands over a putt, no matter how long it is, he has in his mind, this is going in the hole. But you know what? This, this is a, the exact opposite approach that Jesus is taking with us in our spiritual lives. He's saying, no, that's not it. That's not it at all. You want to know what's going to put life back into you? You want to know what's going to get you to stay with the metaphor, staying in the game and playing well? Dying. You have to die a death to yourself. You must decrease that I might increase in your life. And until that happens, you will be so far out of the game, you won't even be considered a player. So this is Jesus' call to the church at Sardis. This is Jesus' call to us. Wake up, church! Don't be the walking dead. Well, the third thing we see in the text this morning, verses 4 through 6, is that God will know the names of the faithful forever. Now, from a literary standpoint, I actually love what Jesus does here. Remember, this started out being about their reputation about people having a good opinion about them. And then in these verses, look at verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, you still have a few names. Verse 5, I will, not, I will never blot his name, and I will confess his name. Well, what is your name? It's all about your reputation. He's coming full circle here. In other words, do you want this good reputation before man, or do you want a good reputation before Christ? Everyone out there might have a lot of great things to say about you and who you are and what it appears that you're doing, but what really matters? What really matters is what Jesus thinks. Your reputation before Jesus is infinitely more important than your reputation before every man, woman, or child that has ever lived. Now, in light of that, in verse 4, he does give a commendation. There are a few people in the church who have remained alert, who have remained spiritually alive. Jesus switches metaphors here a bit, and he says that they have not soiled their garments. They are still in hot pursuit of godliness. They have not been compromised. And very likely, these are the people who, those who looked at Sardis, saw from a distance and drew the conclusion that church is great. They're doing it right. They're doing the right things in the right way. But think about it. If you visit a church for the first time where you don't know anybody, what do you have to base your opinion of that church on? Assuming it's theologically sound and there's decent preaching, when it comes to thinking about the church as a whole, you're probably going to draw a conclusion based on your interactions with the people, right? That's natural. 
So who generally are the people in the church who are going to go out of their way to greet a visitor? Probably the people who are spiritually alert. They're not looking down. They have their heads up. They're looking. They're alert. And so it's easy to see how Sardis could have gotten a good reputation, just like many today have a good reputation, because people who are putting themselves forward are actually those who are spiritually awake. But Jesus says here in this church, that's only a few people. They're in the church, and that's a good thing. But Jesus is saying, look, you are so concerned with your appearance on the outside, and there are some beautiful things to see. Some of those things are that some of these people are spiritually alive people. However, the reality is that for the church on the whole, for the most part, it is diseased and it is deadly. It's about to, be pass, it's about to pass away. Now, remember last time we looked in the previous letter... And it said, Jesus' eyes were like a blazing fire. In other words, he sees right through everything. He knows our makeup. He knows our true spiritual condition greater than we know it. And the church at Sardis was in need of spiritual restoration. He's telling them to work on what they still have before they have nothing at all, lest he blot their name out of the Lamb's book of life. That's serious. You know, one of the things I think is saddest about the West today is that many more people would be concerned to hear your name is being blotted out of the membership of the church than they would be to hear your name is being blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life. What about you? Will your name be confessed before the Father and before His angels by the Lord Jesus Christ? Some of you are here this morning and you have no hope that your name is recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life, but I'm telling you that there is a way, that there is a way by faith that you might receive Christ and live upon Him and His righteousness. And that is the call in every person who has ever lived to turn from themselves, to die to themselves, to come to the end of themselves, that we might live upon Jesus Christ alone. By faith, Christ is ready and willing to receive you. That you might have faith in Him, trust in Him, walking with Him, identifying that Christ has died, that you might live. Would you put all of your sin upon the cross, that He might give all of His righteousness to you? Do you remember in the upper room at the final Passover, Jesus was with his disciples, and he mentioned that among them there was one that was going to betray them. And the disciples were sort of all looking at each other like, it's not me, is it you? I don't, it, I, I'm not going to do that. Are you going to do that? And they sort of had this conversation where they're questioning each other and maybe at some point questioning themselves. I, I don't know who that's going to But you know, you know who knew? Judas knew. Judas knew that Jesus was talking about him. Judas knew that he was the betrayer. And Jesus knew that he was the betrayer. And Judas knew that Jesus knew he was the betrayer. And it wasn't that Judas knew that was most important. It was that Jesus knew. You know, you may be able to put on a lot of exterior to make it appear as though you've got it all together, but you, you really know it's all that. It's all exterior. And you know what? Jesus knows that too. However, look at Jesus. He's so tender with the faithful in Sardis. 
He says, as you conquer. If you go in for a surgery, one of the things you have to think through is whether or not it is worth it. Given the time, given the cost, given the recovery, is it worth all of that? Is it worth the pain of the surgery and the recovery? Will the results pay off in the long run? Well, when it comes to repairing a spiritual aneurysm, Jesus says, it is worth it. You will be in perfect white, walking with me, always confess before the Father. Otherwise, as a thief in the night, I will come. Take it on. It's worth it. Brothers and sisters, our Savior is worth all that it takes to walk with Him in faithfulness. Friend without Christ, flee to Him. He is worthy. He is worth it. And when Jesus takes away the facade, but all you've got is your name, and the name might be that you're alive, you might be standing there naked and fully ashamed. But it's when we look at all that nakedness and shame, when we see more clearly what we need is to be demolished so that we can be rebuilt. That's the great thing about dying to ourselves and living upon Christ. When we recognize that Jesus will rebuild us through word and spirit, when we make our names small that his name might be great, he brings about an utter transformation. Not overnight, not just over a week, but over a lifetime. And he does that with love, he does that with patience, he does that with grace. He does that with mercy for me, for you, for us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to Redeemer Baptist Church.